We're going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, this morning. And we're going to talk about the first small groups. But before we do that this morning, I just need to apologize and ask for your forgiveness. You say, well, what are you apologizing and asking for forgiveness for? Something I've said or done. He said, well, what is it? Well, I don't know. The Bible says in Proverbs 10, 19, in a multitude of words, there is sin not lacking. And being a teacher of the word, eventually you're going to say something to defend somebody. So I just apologize up front and tell you, if I say something this morning that offends you or I've said something that offends you, I did not intentionally mean to do so. So here's how I want you to handle that. The Bible also says love covers a multitude of sins. So if you can be offended by something I've said and to say, well, you know, Dustin is just human and he didn't mean anything by that, then just forgive me and forget it. But if it really bothers you and it's causing you to have problems in your life with me spiritually, you need to come and tell me, Dustin, what you said offended me. And I promise you, I will ask for your forgiveness and say I'm sorry for doing that, even though I didn't do it intentionally. I can promise you that. So I just want to get that out of the way up front. I try to do that every so often. I think it's been a couple of years since I've done that. So I'm just going to apologize up front for anything I say today that might offend you. I hope I don't. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. It says, Then those who, were, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I got a lot to say this morning, so I got to get a move on. I've got about three messages to share. And so I want to condense that down and really get across what I'm trying to say this morning. A couple of years ago, a group of 12 members from Calvary began meeting together to answer the question, what are we here for? We enlisted the help of a ministry called Oksana, and they helped us to come together, and through this year-long process, maybe a year-and-a-half-long process, we came up with a final mission statement. Our mission statement is guiding all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. Guiding all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. We prayed, we discussed, we analyzed, we even debated the choice of each one of these words. And we're very happy with our final statement because we think it conveys the mission and purpose of Calvary Bible Church. You know, I was listening to a radio program not long ago and they were talking about students coming to Bible colleges today versus 25 or 30 years ago. And they said they have to go back now and do remedial Bible teaching for kids coming into college now to be pastors and teachers. Because a lot of times they don't even know the basic Christian doctrines. 
They did a survey of the evangelical church, especially high schoolers, and they found that only 4% of them had what you would call a biblical worldview. And I say that because in our mission statement, there's three phrases that stick out. First of all is guiding. We debated a lot over the word guiding or leading or teaching. And we chose the word guiding because we see our mission as Christians as being a guide to others. We're showing them how to do it. We're walking with them. If you've ever had a guide take you on somewhere, they're teaching you as they're going. They're doing it with you. Biblical followers. As a Bible church, we felt that, you know, there's a lot of people that are trying to follow Christ. But are they trying to do it according to the Word of God? So many people today don't even know what the Word of God says. And in their mind, they come up with their own way of following Christ. So we felt very strongly on that. And then intentional relationships. Jesus did his ministry through relationships. And relationships are the utmost importance in the body of Christ. You cannot do true biblical ministry. You cannot see true spiritual growth outside of relationships. So we came up with a strategy, a four-phase strategy of how we're going to do this. How we're going to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. First of all, on Sunday mornings, we're going to gather and worship. That's first base. That's where we come together to worship God through hearing his word, through song, through prayers, through encouraging one another. It's a big gathering of the group. And we've done a lot to make this more of a worship experience over the last few years. Second base is we're going to grow in community. And this is where our small groups that we've recently started come in. We're going to grow together in meaningful community with service, with accountability, and with prayer. Small groups are not essentially a Bible study, although it is, the Bible is studied and the Bible is applied, but it's really more of an area for ministry and growth and accountability. And then we're going to gear up for service and training. That's where we gear up to walk with Jesus, grow in our faith, and serve him more fully. And that's going to be starting this fall, and you're going to hear more about that. And then finally, we're going to go out together to make disciples in our neighborhoods, our city, our nation, and our world. Small groups and the missions trips will have a lot to do with that. And we're setting aside some exciting things in the future where we want to see people from this congregation go out on short-term mission projects. And we're going to help them do that. So that's kind of our overall strategy, our mission and our strategy. There's more to do that with it than that, and I'd encourage you to pick up that information. We have it available. So when was the first small groups? When did they take place? Well, I think you see that in, in the church, in Acts chapter 2, where it says they met together and continued in the apostles' doctrine. Where did they meet? Well, they met in houses mainly. They met in the temple, but they mainly met in houses. And if you look at what they did in this passage, you'll see that they were extremely effective. And you have to ask your question, the question, what made the early church so effective that people were being added to the church daily? Daily people were coming to the Lord. What was their focus? What were they committed to? Well, they were committed to four important ingredients I want to share with you this morning. And you say, well, how committed were they? Well, notice this. And it says in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly. They continued st- steadfastly. That word 
means to give constant attention to. They were committed to these four elements. First of all, they were, they were committed to the apostles' doctrine. Notice this. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching. What was the apostles' doctrine and teaching that they were so committed to? Well, Jesus gave them this revelation. He gave them this information. It says in John chapter 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, now, therefore, you have no long, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of, of, of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The apostles and prophets, they were given the information that lay the foundation of the church. And what is this foundation? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, it says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is that mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every person, every man, perfect, mature, complete in Christ Jesus. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers. The central truth that all believers need to, to be established in is the person and work of Jesus Christ, and who they are, and the resources they have in Christ. That was a mystery that was given to Paul. That we can have Christ in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we live and move and live our lives out of that. That relationship with Christ. And that was the doctrine they were establishing them in. The most important thing we can establish believers in is their identity in Christ Jesus. They need to know what it means to be in Christ. They need to know the forgiveness, the justification, the sanctification process, all those things that come from being in Christ Jesus. Because it's from that that we live our Christian lives and serve the Lord. And if we're not established in that, we're going to get caught up in a lot of things that will sidetrack us. In fact, the book of Colossians was written for that very purpose. They were being drawn away by other doctrines, by legalism, by Gnosticism. And Paul is writing to them, trying to show them the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You can't get any more complete than being in Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, and you're in him, and he's in you. So you're complete in Christ. You can't get any more right than with God than being in Christ. Because when God looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You can't work for it, you can't earn it, nor do you deserve it. And they were establishing these people in their identity in Christ. And as you work your way through the book of Acts, you see Paul is constantly fighting that battle against legalism and other false doctrines that are trying to pull people away from the simplicity in Christ. 
So that's what they were establishing in them. And that's what we need to establish people in today, the sufficiency of Christ. Christ in you and you in Christ. And they were committed to that. They were meeting daily to do that. Notice this, that they not only continued daily in the apostles' doctrine, but also it says, and fellowship. Fellowship. They were committed to each other in fellowship. This is the word koinonia, which you've probably heard if you've been in Christian circles for years. And this word basically means a sharing, a participation. It means contact. It has the ideal of intimacy behind it. Vincent, the great word scholar, said it's a relationship between individuals which involves a common interest and mutual active participation in that interest and each other. Fellowship is an interesting thing. One pastor I knew years ago said a fellowship is like being in a ship. On one of those great ships of old, those wooden ships, you said you have a captain. His name is Jesus. And then everybody in the crew is working together to get that ship to go where it's supposed to go. You're all going the same direction. You all have the same leader. And you're all working together to keep that ship moving. And that's kind of a beautiful picture of the church. Jesus is our captain. And we look to him and we obey him. And each one of us has different gifts in the body of Christ. Some people are manning the sails. Some people are manning the anchors. Some people are swabbing the deck. They're all working together to keep that ship moving. Some people are cooking the meals. And that's what it means to have fellowship. You know, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are 59 one another's. And this is what he says. He says, be at peace with one another, love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, accept one another, stop passing judgment on one another, live in harmony with one another, serve one another, carry one another's burdens, be patient with one another, be kind with one another, forgive one another, teach one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, spur one another on to love and good works, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another. That's community, folks. You know, it's amazing in the church sometimes we think, okay, I come to Christ, I've accepted Him, I'm right with God. And that's all I need. I'm right with God, I'm good. Well, you're not only reconciled to God, you're reconciled to your fellow man. See, sin not only separated us from God, it drove a wedge between us and everyone else. You see that in the Bible. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what happened in their relationship? What happened with Cain and Abel? That's what sin does. It divides us. It creates competition, jealousy, hatred, envy, distrust, all those things where we tend to attack each other. But we cannot be, that's why he's saying, you can't take the Lord's table and say, I have communion and fellowship with God, but I'm going to treat the rest of these people horribly. And God let that go. If you're going to be right with God, you've got to treat each other right also. And that's a, that's, a, that's a battle. That's, in fact, where the battle begins a lot of times. It's how we treat other people. And how we treat people that are difficult. And how we, how we handle it when there's misunderstandings between one another. You know, we are not told in the Scriptures that we are to sanctify one another. Or humble one another. Or scrutinize one another. Or embarrass one another. Or put pressure on one another. Or defeat one another. Or shame one another. We're told to build each other up in the body of Christ. We're told to love one another. God highly values how we treat one another. 
You know, it's interesting when he comes to the church, there's a lot of times we treat each other badly over certain issues. We judge each other over foolish things. One of those things that I've seen in the body of Christ that's very hurtful, and I'm just going to give you some examples, is how do you educate your children? Do you send them to a Christian school? Do you homeschool them? Or do you send them to public school? I have seen Christians treat each other very, very hatefully and say very, very hurtful things to each other out of each one of these camps. I've seen homeschooling parents say, if you send your kids to public school, you're, you're sacrificing them to Satan. I've heard them say those very words. I've seen public school parents say, if you homeschool your children, you end up with a bunch of emotionally retarded children. I've heard those very words come out of their mouth. They can't relate and, and don't know how to function in society. You've heard those same things. Some of you are snickering and laughing. How do we say such hateful things to each other? And then I say to Christian school parents, take the middle ground, you know, with pride. We've got our kids in a, pub, in a private school, and it costs so much money a year, and, and they're getting the best of educations. <laughs> I've seen kids come out of each one of these, these settings, homeschool, public school, Christian school, and be warriors for Christ. I've seen kids come out of each one of these settings and be total heathens and sinners and totally reject Christ. We need to treat people with with respect and courtesy and realize that God has different... There are gray areas in the Scriptures. And I know you've got all your proof texts and verses to go with each one of these views. But we need to show grace and humility to each other. Sometimes the division in how we dress. Older saints were raised with, with the idea that we should come to church dressed our best, present our best to God. Younger Christians today believe, well, God is not concerned on the outward appearance. You can come and dress as you normally dress in everyday life. So today I kind of hit the middle ground. I've got on dress shoes, I've got on a coat, and I've got on jeans and a hiking shirt. No tie. So I'm, I'm here to, you know, Paul said he might become all things to all men. So I just said I'll hit the middle ground and maybe not offend anybody. Probably end up offending everybody. You know, you don't look hip, you look stupid, you know. What about whether or not we raise our hands in church or we don't raise our hands at all? You know, the people that don't raise their hands are looking at the persons that have got their hands up to the Lord, judging them, saying, well, ah, they're just trying to draw attention to themselves. And the people raising their hands are saying, what's wrong with these people? Don't they want to love, worship and serve the Lord? They're so inhibited. I love Ronald Allen. He wrote a book years ago called Praise a Matter of Life and Breath. And he said, I wish we'd get to the point in church where it doesn't matter which one you do, because praise is not state of the art. It's state of our heart. And it doesn't make any difference if you have your hands up or your hands down. What's going on in your heart? You can worship the Lord either way. And then COVID. Now, COVID was another big one. I've got to admire our elders. Because we had in our congregation every view about COVID you can imagine when it hit. From that it was nothing and the government was trying to get you to take an injection, which was a mark of the beast that was going to fill you up with some kind of nanobots and they'd be able to track you. To other people that felt like if we don't shut everything down, everyone here will have an outbreak and everybody will die. Seriously. I've heard all of those things. That code was nothing but a code. Just, I had it the first go around. It was the sickest I've ever been in my life. 
You know, I didn't take it seriously, to be honest with you. I said, I'm young, I'm strong, I run marathons. If I get it, it won't bother me. I was wrong. It put me flat on my back for three weeks. And so I had to go back and reevaluate, you know. So as elders, we got together, and we were, we were even on different spectrums on the elder board. But we came together, and we listened to each other. We prayed with each other. And we came to the conclusion, we don't want to lock the church down, except for the two weeks. How can we... How can we worship together without having an outbreak, without spreading it everywhere? So we went to those more on the medical side and said, come up with a plan. How can we meet together and mitigate infecting each other? And I told them, I said, look, we've got older saints. We don't want to infect our older saints. Said, What's going to happen if we meet together and we have an outbreak? You know, we're responsible for that. We're responsible to protect the body of Christ. Yes, we want to meet together, but we want to do it safely. So we did everything we could. I had one person I was telling them that, and and their response was, well, we're all going to die sometime. And I thought, wow, what a comment. I said, I I would have a hard time living with myself if we came together and had this huge COVID outbreak because we were negligent and just taking it lightheartedly. So all of those things, I've seen people be ugly to one another. It shouldn't be that way in the body of Christ. We need to respect each other. I think of Paul, and this is, I'm just reading this passage. I don't even know if it has anything really to do with this message, but it's one of my favorite passages out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. You ever thought about Paul like that? So affectionately longing for you, we were pleased not only to impart to you the gospel of God, but are also our own lives. Because you had become so dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach the gospel to you without charge. What is he saying? He's saying, we worked making tents at night so we didn't have to take support from you because we loved you and cared for you that much. You are my witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly, blamelessly, we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul says we were like parents. We loved you like spiritual parents. I was like a mother. We were like a nursing, cherishing mother. We were like a charging father among you. You know, that's, that's the way we loved you and cared about you. And that's the way it should be in the body of Christ. That's the way fellowship should be. Notice this also. They continued in the breaking of bread and, pray, and in prayers. The breaking of bread. What does this mean? Well, in the early church, up to about somewhere between 100 and 150 A.D., when they met together, usually on Sunday nights, they all brought food and they ate together. And then they took the Lord's Supper. You say, well, where did they get that from? Well, they got it from the Lord Jesus. Because the night he instituted the Lord's Supper, what were they doing? They were eating a meal together. And they called this the agape or love feast. And so I want you to know something this morning. That fellowship and breaking bread together go hand in hand. Eating together. Notice this also, it says in the next verse, down from there, it says they, they were breaking bread from house to house and ate their food with simplicity. 
He's talking about not just taking the Lord's Supper here, but he's talking about the love feast. I want to share with you the idea this morning that eating together is a spiritual event. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how many times the Lord's ministry revolved around food? There's something about eating together that brings us together. And I think we've seen that in our small groups where there, there seems to be always be some kind of food there. You know, Karen and I have been having one in our house, and, and we always try to fix a really good meal. And there's just something spiritual about when you come down and you eat together and you begin to communicate with each other around a table. And you begin to share in each other's lives. And then you take the Lord's Supper together like we did this morning. The agape or love feast, it eventually went away around 150 A.D., but I tell you, it's something we need to get back to is eating together. You know, we call it potlucks and everything. A lot of times we call it a fellowship, and we don't really think about it being a spiritual thing. But God gave us eating. He, he made it where we need to eat food together. And being together as a family, what do families do that are, that are very functional? They meet together for an evening meal. And as they're eating together, they talk about what's going on in each other's lives. We need to do that also. We need to get past just taking a piece of bread and drinking a little wine together. Well, we need to eat together before we do that. And our small groups that we started give us an opportunity to do that. In Jude chapter 12, it says, False teachers are spots on your love feast. We need to be committed to being together, taking the Lord's Supper together, but also sharing a meal together at times. It's a very spiritual thing that can draw us closer together. Not only were they fellowshipping together, they were eating together, which ties hand in hand in with that. They were taking the Lord's Supper together, which is a spiritual thing. It's a time of examination like we did this morning and, and examining how we're relating to others in the body of Christ. But they were also committed to praying. Praying. Look at it. Uh, flip over to Acts chapter 4, verse 23. I'll read this passage this morning. This was after Peter and John had been confronted by the leaders and they told them to quit. They'd actually been arrested and they were brought out the next day. And they told them, you guys got to quit preaching in, Je- in the name of Jesus. Quit teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, we got to obey God rather than, rather than man. And then they just let them go. It says in verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God and with one accord said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place they were assembled together was shaken, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of the God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, 
Neither did anyone say that any of his things he possessed was his own. And they had all things in common. Prayer. One of the things we really wanted to do as elders was meet together to pray every Sunday. Every Sunday morning at 8.45, we meet together for prayer. We pray for you in the church. We pray for those that are sick. We pray for our nation. We pray for each other. We lift up the body of Christ in prayer because prayer, I believe, is the key to unlocking the presence and power of God in our lives and the life of the church. Praying, talking to God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Notice he talks about prayer and supplication. Prayer is simply talking to God. In the Old Testament, there were two Hebrew words, tefla and tigna, for prayer. One of them meant supplication, means asking God for a request or making a request of God. The other meant simply talking to God. And that's the word that's used most often. It's just talking to God. Telling God what is going on in your lives. What your fears are. What you're struggling with. Talking to him as you would a friend. Sharing the deeper, deepest, innermost thoughts of your heart. If you're angry at him, tell him. He already knows that you're angry. We need to pour out our hearts in prayer to God. And notice Ephesians chapter 6, that's in the context of taking on the armor of God and being victorious spiritually against, against Satan. He says you've got to put on the whole armor of God. But it's energized and activated by praying, pouring out our hearts in prayer to God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Holy Spirit, and then watching with perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We need to be praying for each other. One thing I love about our small groups is when they get together, they're, they're spending time in prayer every week, praying for each other. So what happens? What happens when we come together and we're in the Apostles' Doctrine? We're fellowshipping together on a regular basis, continually fellowshipping. That we're breaking bread together and eating together. That we're praying together as a body. Notice this, back to chapter 2. It says, verse 43, Then, that's a time word, Then, when they were continually devoted to the Word, to each other, to eating together and praying together, then the fear of the Lord came upon every soul. A sense of awe. Not a fear in, that I'm afraid of God, but awe and wonder at the majesty of God. They begin to see the greatness of God for who He really is. Matthew Henry wrote this, the greatness of the event raised them above the world. And the Holy Spirit filled them with such love as made everyone to be another as to himself. And so made all things common, not by destroying property, but by doing away with selfishness and causing charity to flow and abound. That's what happens. When people begin to do these things together, the fear of God, a sense of awe of the presence of God. Notice this. Not only that. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. 
God's presence was demonstrated through powerful ministry. The presence of God. When a church is fellowshipping and meeting together and growing together like this, you can sense the presence of God. Laura was telling me that one of the ladies, new couples that have come into our church, in one of the meetings when I said, oh, we're coming here. There's, there's a revival taking place here. We can sense it. When you come into a church where the presence of God is working, you can sense the presence of God. You can feel the love of Christ. And I'll tell you something. When a church starts doing that, our enemy comes against it. He gets in. That's when he starts trying to cause the divisions and the schisms and, and all the little things over the things I was talking about earlier, like COVID-19 or how you dress or where you send your kids to school. It's interesting. It never comes over some theological thing. It's always some over gray area that people disagree about passionately. But when a church is doing what it's supposed to be doing and functioning the way it's supposed to be functioning, the fear of God comes among every soul and the presence of God is, dis- is developed. It's displayed for us to see. And then notice this, not only that, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. A sense of unity. Notice this, not only was unity, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. There was a sense of unity and generosity in the body of Christ. Generosity. Giving to others. In 200 A.D., Tertullian said this. He said, though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money, as of a religion that has its own price. On the monthly day, if he likes, each puts a small donation, but only if it is his pleasure and only if he is able. For there, are, there is no compulsion All do it voluntarily. These are gifts, not to be spent on feasts and drinking bouts or eating houses, but to support and help the poor, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents and old persons confined now to their house. Such, too, as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons, For nothing but fidelity to the cause of God, the church may help them. That's the way the early church was. Yes, you said, well, why were they pulling their funds together? Because back then there was no social programs. And there were many people who came to Christ. Their families disowned them. They lost their jobs. They were thrown out of their houses. They had no place to go. The church was the only safety net. The only one to take care of those widows and orphans and people that had need was the church. And you see it over and over and over again in the book of Acts where they came together and they said, hey, I've got this land. I don't need this land. I'm not taking this land into the kingdom. I'm going to sell it. I'm giving the money to the church to help those that have need in the body of Christ. Great power, great power and great ministry took place. So, are small groups important? Well, first, the question you ask yourself, is it biblical? I'm not going to say that meeting in large buildings is a bad thing or a wrong thing. 
Because they still met in the temple. If you notice, it says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and in breaking the bread from house to house. I think meeting together as a body in a large building is a good thing. That's why it's part of our strategies to gather together on Sunday mornings. This time is a time to meet together, to encourage each other in a large context, and be challenged by the Word of God. Well, I've got to move quick now. But the fact is, in the early church, they met together in houses mainly. And this is the norm in many parts of the world today. I just met with a guy named Sanjay Lucas. He has a ministry in India called Remi, Reaching Indians Something Ministries. I can't remember exactly what it calls for. It's R-I-M-I. They have 1,600 missionaries, Indian missionaries now in India with 12,000 house churches. The way their ministry works is they take them and train them. They have 31 Bible colleges they've now started. They take them, they train them, and then they help buy, they buy them a motorcycle or a little scooter to get around on, and they support them until they get a house church of 20 people. When they get a house church of 20 or 30 people, they're on their own then. They get a job, they work like the rest of the people in the congregation, and they have their house churches. And that's their model. And they have now 12,000 house churches in India, and they're still starting more all the time. China, the underground church in China meets in houses. They're estimated over 100 million Chinese people meeting in houses, meeting together in small groups. It's still a way to do it today. Nothing wrong with meeting together. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I'm against that at all. I'm all for that. But the smaller groups is a place where ministry can really take place. Number two, it allows for true community to develop and flourish. People get to develop and use their gifts in a small group. You know, in a small group where you meet together, it's a place where you have an opportunity to share in the lives of others in an intimate context. You can share what's going on in your lives. We have good small group leaders. And so I'd encourage you, there's no way a pastor can pastor a church of 200 people and get to know everybody and invest in all their lives and get to know them intimately. I was meeting one time with a church in Georgia, a small church, and one of the deacons there, he was about 80 years old. He had a son and daughters that were both missionaries and one that was a pastor. And he said, Dustin, I think it's crazy to think that a, that a pastor can really effectively pastor more than 20 or 30 people. And I said, I agree with that. He can be a preacher. He can stand up and preach on Sunday mornings. But to do all the work of the ministry and all the things that, are, that are, need to be done, it's almost impossible. Number three, it allows for greater communication between the elders, the leaders of the church, and the body of Christ. If you're in a small group, incidentally, if you're in this church, you can read the elders' minutes. And if I'm not mistaken, you're welcome to come to the elders' meetings and listen in. We're not trying to hide things as elders. We're open. And as elders, you know, unless it's something really, really delicate, and sometimes we have to discuss some very delicate matters, those don't go into minutes, incidentally, and those don't leave that room. Because there's people that are dealing with some very tough issues in their life that nobody else needs to know about. We pray for those people in those meetings, and we discuss how we can help and minister to them. But in a small group, you have an opportunity to talk to your elders and let them know what's going on. Because good elders always lead listening to the congregation. God not only speaks through the elders to the body, but he speaks through the body back to the elders. 
So it gives us an opportunity as elders to listen to the people and find out their needs and concerns. And do they understand what we're trying to do? You know, the Bible tells us that, in fact, I'm going to read a couple of verses. Let me go back to this. I wrote these down. I didn't know if I was going to share these or not. These are from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Remember those who lead you, have spoken to you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Verse 17, obey those who lead you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As they must give an account, let them do it with joy, not with grief, for that would not be profitable for you. I'm telling you something. I've served on a lot of boards over the years. And I've seen a lot of men that were good men on the elder boards and deacon boards. I think we've got the finest men that, that, that I've ever served with. They really care about you. They really care about the body of Christ. And it's not always easy. It's not always easy dealing with things that come up, the COVID thing. That was something that we really took serious, that we really prayed about, that we were really concerned about, that we listened to you to find out where your hearts were. If you have concerns, you need to come to the elders. Now, please don't all come to me this afternoon on the way out and, and share all your grievances. There's other elders. I don't. <laughs> but we need to treat each other that way. We need to treat each other with love and respect. And small groups give us another avenue to grow the body of Christ. And that's why we started them. We have uh, six small groups right now. And they're going really well. In fact, they're going better than I thought they would even go. Uh, the, we've got good leaders leading them, and the people are actively in participating in them and enjoying them. If you're not in one, I challenge you to uh, to find one. And we might even start some more as as we need to. But the only the only thing that I haven't seen yet in the small groups that I that I really would like to see, and I'm closing with this, is intergenerational. Right now, they seem to be all divided by age groups. And that's not a bad thing to be with your own age group. But I really would like to see in the future that our, that our, that our groups come together. I was thinking about the passage in Timothy, and I'm not going to read it, but where Paul is te- telling Timothy, he says, Don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example to the older people and show them that you're faithful and that you're committed to the Word of God. And he tells that Timothy, he said, Now don't rebuke elders, but treat them as you would your father. And, and older women as your mothers and other younger women as your sisters in Christ. And one of the things that tells us, too, is not to despise young people as older people. I would like to see the body of Christ come together eventually. And we're not going to force this, but where they cross over. I think about my son, David, and I'm closing with this. Uh, I was praying for him to come to know the Lord. And he was away in California he never wanted to accept the Lord, but I knew one day he would. And finally, he went to a counselor. He was suffering PTSD from coming back from Iraq and doing tour tours in combat. And he searched out a Christian counselor. And that Christian counselor, uh, a godly pastor of a Nazarene church, really helped him. I asked him one time, I said, what did, how did he help you? What did he do? He said, oh, he just told me all the stuff you'd always told me. I said, well, how much did that cost you? Oh, about $175 an hour. But not only did he help him, he led him to a small group in that Nazarene church, 
led by a couple, a couple named Penny and Andy. And I've always prayed for my kids that God would use other people to come in their life and influence them and be their parents. And Penny and Andy, which are mine, Karen age, they were leading this small group. It had a multi-generational, from teenagers up to 80-year-olds in that group, or 90-year-olds. And they met in their house for a meal, and they got into the Word of God. And Penny and Andy, even though they have their own children, they became David's spiritual parents. In fact, they became so close that they actually flew to Huntsville last year, last summer, to eat dinner with us and meet us for the first time. And I told them, I said, when David went, got up to go to the bathroom, I said, you do not realize how much of an answer to prayer you were in David's life. How many hours we prayed for him. And that's the way a, that's the way a small group should work. And God used that in David's life in a miraculous way. I can't tell you the change that God wrought in him through working through that small group. And then he got also involved in a, He got involved in another small group at a, at a larger church that had a men's group. You know, and got involved in a men's ministry group where he had men his own age he could do things with and be accountable to. But I just want to challenge you that that's our vision, that's our goal, and that's where we're headed. And if you're not in a small group, I would, I would just challenge you to pray about it. One of our elders, a few months ago, some time ago, he was like, well, I, I don't have any problem with small groups, but I'll probably never join one. He's in one now, the one that meets on Sunday nights, one of our most faithful guys, and, and, and shares as much as anyone in the group. He's faithful to be there. Every Wednesday night he can be there. He's there. And I thought, well, I didn't think you wanted to be in one. But I haven't said that to him. But I just see he was open to it, and God worked in his heart. Let's pray this morning. Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to share your word. Sorry I've gone so long this morning, but I just had a lot to share. Father, I love what you're doing in our church. I pray that we would fight against division. That's the work of the enemy is to cause us to be divided, to be divided over gray areas, over secondary things. And I pray, Father, we would be, we would be gracious to one another and loving to one another and kind to one another and encouraging to one another. And building each other up in the body of Christ. Sometimes, Father, we do need to confront in love. Let it always be done in love. And let it be done about something that really needs to be confronted about. I just pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.